And I thank you for this opportunity to come before you today to preach God's Word. And I'm very happy to see so many here in attendance, especially so many young faces. That is truly a blessing. If you don't know much about me, I've only been here for about two years, and I know we've gone through a lot of different faces in that time period since I've been here. And I remember the first service I attended at Calvary in the SDA church building. There was only, I believe, 77 in attendance that day. And I remember praying specifically, God, double that number, you know, make this church grow and help us. And it's been a blessing ever since coming here. This is a wonderful church family. And being a part of Mile One Mission has been just a tremendous blessing in my own life because it's helped enable me to look ahead to this endeavor that I'm going to be doing. And that is we're going to replant the Northern Cross Community Church in Happy Valley Goose Bay, Labrador. <clears throat> so just to give you a little bit about myself, uh, I'm originally from Biloxi, Mississippi. That's down in the southern part of the United States, right there on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm a military veteran and a retired police officer. And after I retired, I dedicated myself full time to go into ministry. And that led me up here to St. John's, Newfoundland by the grace of God. And I am so very thankful for that. And today, as Aaron read that passage to you, um, the sermon we're going to discuss today is about the law. Now, I know that's an incredibly exciting topic to talk about, right? You know? But don't start looking at your phones just yet. I'm going to try to make it interesting for you. And discussing the law, I'm not just talking about criminal law, like the laws we have on the books, provincial laws and federal laws. We're talking about the moral law that God has given us. And we're going to see how this law specifically, it does not conflict with or replace the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, when I was a police officer, I would commonly hear things like, come on, man, can't you just let this slide? Or sometimes we'd hear things like, uh, come on, man, this ain't nothing. This ain't no big deal. Just let us go. Just let, just let us go, you know. And the folks who always said these things, they knew they were caught doing something wrong. They knew that. But they still had this expectation of mercy and grace. This was especially the case if you caught somebody doing something that they perceived as a victimless crime, sort of like a, a DUI that wasn't accident-related or maybe shoplifting from a major retail store, um, prostitution, or even something like illicit street drugs. They said, I'm not hurting anybody, just let me go. But when it comes to laws, especially provincial and federal laws, every law that's on the book serves a purpose, and it's, it's designed to help create a functional society. You see, the laws, they identify bad behavior or behavior that's detrimental to society, and that's the sole purpose of these laws. This is true for criminal law, and it's true also for the moral law that was given us by God in the Bible. It identifies bad behavior. Remember that. Now, the role of a police officer is to recognize when a violation of, of law has occurred, uh, and the officer makes a record of this violation by either a citation, a summons, or an arrest, all depending upon the severity of the crime. Um, and if a police officer fails to do this, then he's failing at his job. He's, 
He's not being responsible. So all laws are supposed to be enforced by the police, and that's why they call it law enforcement. Now, punishment and corrective actions come later. They come from a judge. And when a person tries to minimize a crime, to say, you know, like, this ain't nothing, this is no big deal, what they're actually doing is trying to escape responsibility for their actions and evade any type of accountability. And if they're successful, the person then is more likely to become a repeat offender. They're also likely and inclined to intensify the severity of their future crimes. Now, I can't tell you how many times I sat in the booking room there at the Biloxi Police Department, and I heard criminals actually brag about how they were going to beat their charges, and as soon as they got out, they were going to go out and do more. That happened so often, I, I just couldn't, could not count the number of times. It's a vicious cycle for some people. Um, one where corrective actions, they don't really have the potency to, to dissuade people from violating the law again. Again, that's not the function of the law. The law just simply identifies the crime. The punishment and corrective actions fall under the judicial system, specifically a judge. And the law does not prevent crime from happening. A judge implements the corrective actions and punishments with the hopes that it will convince people to stop doing those crimes and try to prevent them from repeating anything like that again. Now, no one I know likes punishment. I don't like punishment. So we have a choice. We either obey the law, or when we stand before a judge, we're going to try to throw every excuse at him that we can to get out of responsibility for those crimes. But, and also, you know, we're not held responsible for every law we break in this life. You know, there, uh, there's plenty of times, I'm sure driving here today, I probably broke four or five traffic laws, just, you know, daydreaming and driving along. Um, but God's moral law is something we can't escape. Everything we do is recorded by him. The Bible tells us that on the last day, the books are open before the great white throne of judgment in Revelation chapter 20. And if you're wondering who's seated on that throne, that great white throne, look no further than Jesus Christ himself. And some of you might think, now wait a minute, Jesus is our Savior, right? Yes, he is. But he's also the judge. And he'll be the one everyone answers to on that final day. Um, if you're taking notes, write this in your margin. John chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus said these words, For the Father judges no one. He has appointed all judgment unto the Son. For some people, Jesus is going to be the Savior. For others, Jesus will be the judge. And I thank God every day I know Jesus is my Savior because I don't want to meet him as, as my judge. And I would never be able to keep the law perfectly. I, I know that. I, I've fallen at that uh, all the time. But I can rest in the fact that I have salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit because I put my faith in him. My sin debt has been paid. The righteousness of Christ is upon me. And now I can stand guiltless before that throne. Christ actually becomes my advocate. I love this verse too. I, th I believe Steve Daw said this to me last week. And I, I just stuck in my head. I loved it so much. It says... My little children, 
I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's 1 John 2.1. So as I prepare to delve into this uh, passage here, the one that Aaron read you, let me touch on why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia. You see, Paul had visited this area originally during his first missionary journey. And if you want to read about that, it's in Acts chapter 16. He is the one that planted the churches in this area. And although the Roman Empire had conquered this area in about 189 BC, Galatia actually did not become a Roman province until 25 BC. So it was relatively new in the Roman Empire. And most of the converts there in these young churches stepped right out of paganism. Although there was a small contingent of Jewish believers in the area who some of them became Christian. And it's also widely accepted that this letter to Galatia is one of Paul's earliest letters uh, contained within the New Testament. And specifically, it addresses the problem of negative outside influences on the believers within this church. Uh, Primarily, the biggest problem was that this Jewish contingency they had there preached that circumcision was a necessary part of their salvation. Essentially, that meant that you had to become a Jew before you became a Christian. And this notion was very much contrary to what Paul had preached when he planted these churches. This viewpoint was a problem for the early church, and it needed to be addressed and corrected by Paul. The believers in Galatia were being taught that the law wasn't just a guide, you know, like like something that exposed your sin or told you what you were doing wrong, but they were being taught that legalism, that is the adherence to the law, was an actual requirement for their salvation. And I believe this is why Paul was so passionate in his admonition of these local churches. And if you look just back a couple of chapters to Galatians chapter 1, I'm going to read you this passage starting in verse 6. Paul writes these words. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, Some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than what we have preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And that's Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Now, after reading that, in my opinion, that's a very stern rebuke Paul has done of these local churches there in Galatia. Because you don't want to be under God's curse for preaching a false gospel. I can assure you of that. Now you might ask, well, what was the gospel Paul was preaching? It was the gospel of grace. And uh, let me just read a couple of quick verses for you. Paul wrote this to the Ephesians. He said, 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. That's Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And when he wrote the letter to Titus, he wrote these words. In Titus chapter 3, he said, But when the kindness and the love of our God appeared, remember that, when the kindness and the love of our God appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously, generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. And that's Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. Now you can imagine that when reports were getting back to the Apostle Paul about what was happening there in these local churches, how upsetting that must have been for him. He had done some faithful and exhausted work when he planted those churches there. So this letter was very much a necessary thing to prevent the gospel of Jesus Christ from being polluted with outside teachings that were based on human sentiment. And this letter isn't just relevant for an ancient church. It contains a message that's very much relevant for us today. And we have to be on guard not to let outside teachings influence and permeate our churches. Now, if you were here back in late January, you would have heard Curtis preach, and he delivered a sermon, it was a very excellent sermon, on how God never breaks his promises. And this was uh, from the passage just before mine. It was actually from verses uh, 15 through 18 in Galatians chapter 3. And we read these words in that passage. We read that the promise given to Abraham was not nullified by the giving of the law, which actually came 430 years later after that promise. That's in verse 17. And the promise was still fulfilled and it became the answer to the law. And that answer was salvation in Jesus Christ. So in addressing this problem of legalism, Paul begins the passage that we're looking at today by asking a rhetorical question. He says, why then the law? That's the beginning of verse 19. And what he's doing here is he's asking the local churches uh, to ponder in their reasoning, why, why? Would God send the law if he promised us a savior to come through the seed of Abraham? Well, he answers this question himself, and he clearly states that the law was added because of transgressions. That means sin. It was, that was why God had given us the law. The law exposes our sin, and it proves our inability to be able to keep it. Listen to these words he told the Romans. He said, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's Romans 3.19. And if you've been in the Sunday school classes, you would have heard that last week as well. The purpose of the law is easily understood. And I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I want us all to remember this. The law identifies sin, the moral law does. And we stand guilty under it. 
Now, looking at verse 19, Paul continued his thought, and he wrote sort of a conditional clause. He said, until the offspring should come to those who the promise had been made. Now, this conditional clause is referring to the fulfillment of the promise given by God to Abraham, which is culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul essentially declared the sons of Abraham were those from faith, not through the keeping of the law. However, some of the Jewish believers in Galatia were claiming that the covenant of the law given under Moses was more important. And some of them actually even claimed that it actually canceled out this promise that was given to Abraham. Now, this was not the case then, and it's not the case now. The church demonstrates that God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The gospel is available for everyone, not just the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. And you'll see verse 19 concludes with, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And this is referencing how the law was given to Moses through God on Mount Sinai. And it's not fully explained here, so don't get tripped up on it. The reason Paul likes to reference things like, these, like this in his argument is that when talking to Jews, they're going to immediately understand the reference to angels and the law. That was something that was very much a part of their history and identity. And the angels did play a very big role in the revelation of Scripture, as you'll see in the Old Testament. Also, <clears throat> verse 20, the use of intermediaries. This was very common in Jewish culture and also in the secular community to settle disputes, and it's very much so a part of our lives here today. Uh, disputes where there are two parties at odds with one another, a third party comes in and tries to mediate and help those two parties reach a compromise. Now, the difference here, and Paul's explaining to us, is that there's really only one party here, and that's us, that's human beings, and our relationship to our Creator God. Now, remember, God can either be your Savior or your judge. And for most Jews, the law, this legalistic system of life, was very much a huge role in their lives for many generations. The law was not something that most Jews were ready to give up, even as the Messiah had come and completed his work. Now, Paul, if you remember, he was a former Pharisee. That means he was a Jewish leader himself. He used to actually persecute Christians before he became one. Um, Paul was now preaching the gospel of salvation found exclusively in Jesus Christ, not through that legalistic system of keeping laws. It was a radical change for these Jewish folks that required a lot of faith from them. And for some, some of these Jewish folks, it sounded too good to be true. Um, human reasoning told them that this rigid system of Judaism, this legalism, had been a tradition in their communities for a very long time. Also, there was a sense of sentimentality that comes along with it um, that made it more difficult for the Jewish folks to just cling to something like faith alone. Grace by faith alone was a new idea, and it was hard for some of them to accept. And the way many Jews saw it, giving up this law, this legalism, 
um, was pretty much equated to giving up a part of their identity. And Paul wasn't saying get rid of the law. He's just telling them that legalism is not a path to salvation. You only find salvation in Jesus Christ. But human nature in its fallen state is inclined to stray from God. And it's usually because of our arrogance. We often think we know better or we know a better way to do something uh, through our own insight rather than the uh, path that God has laid out before us. This notion is not anything new either. Uh, As you read the Bible, you'll see humans are proven to be fallible over and over again. One thing I learned early on in my time as a police officer is that some folks actually don't want help. Folks can be caught in a situation with less than ideal circumstances, and they will actually turn down assistance if you try to help them. Uh, It's a weird sort of trauma bonding that it just absolutely baffled me, and I, I couldn't understand it when I first encountered it. And all of that kind of came to mind when I was reading about the old sacrificial system of legalism in the Old Testament uh, under the law, and why were these people wanting to stay under that system instead of accepting this new era of grace? I mean, the Messiah was here. He had come. He's given you the path to salvation in Him. Why not just move forward and go with Him? So looking at the Old Testament, let me ask you this. That era of legalism, did it produce a utopia? Did it eradicate sin and usher in a new generation of folks who were destined to please God? No, it didn't. It most certainly did not. In fact, you'll read that the Jews repeatedly strayed from God, and they fell into idol worship, further into depravity, and and faced hardships because of that. And the Jews who were insisting on keeping this form of legalism in Galatia could not accept the fact that you didn't have to work for your salvation. It was just too easy. Um, This new era of grace also significantly reduced the control the religious police had on people at the time. Therefore, these folks who saw this, they sought to influence the young churches in Galatia to accept this form of grace plus works salvation. In other words, a false gospel. And they were actively telling people you had to adhere to legalism. Uh, you know, the grace alone was not enough for your salvation. This was their viewpoint. So this is precisely why Paul wrote this letter. He wanted to correct this bad teaching and point everyone straight to Jesus. You know, abandon this form of legalism. That will not bring you salvation. You need to focus on Jesus. And it wasn't just a problem in Galatia. He actually wrote about this problem in other locations as well. Last month when I was in uh, Labrador, I preached about this very same topic from Colossians chapter 2. But listen to this passage. I, I think this one's very relevant. This is from the book of Romans. Paul wrote these words, and it comes from chapter 7. And he uses an analogy when he's discussing this topic of the law and legalism. He says, Or do you know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, 
that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman, this is the analogy, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lived with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband died, she's freed from under that law. And if she marries another man, she would no longer be considered an adulteress. Likewise, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Think about that. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. We sang about the glorious resurrection a minute ago. In order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were at work in members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we can serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And that's Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. So, as a result of Paul's incessant preaching of the gospel, basically preaching against legalism as a form of salvation, some of the Jews repeatedly rose up against him and tried to silence him. These folks did not want Paul preaching against their their way of life, and they also did not want to think that God would just allow any Gentile into his kingdom Uh, without them first doing some sort of grandiose effort to earn their salvation. Again, a perverted gospel, a gospel of works, not by faith. And if you look in the the New Testament, specifically in the book of Acts, about chapter 14 on, you're going to read about how Paul suffered and endured as he shared the gospel across the Roman Empire. And it wasn't just the Jews who wanted Paul silenced either. He caused uh, quite an uproar when he was in Ephesus. If you'll remember, the silversmith Demetrius gathered all the other silversmiths and most of the town, actually, and you read about it in Acts 19, um, because Paul's preaching was causing the people to turn away from idol worship. And uh, that meant uh, hitting the pocketbook for these silversmiths. So they didn't like him very much. But fortunately, Paul was able to walk away from that kind of pagan encounter unscathed. But one instance where we do read where Paul suffered was when he returned to Jerusalem in Acts 21. And you'll see specifically, it's in verse 28 too, that one of the accusations that was specifically lodged against him was that Paul was preaching against the law. And he was. He was preaching against the legalism uh, form of salvation. And Paul, you'll see in in chapter 21, he tried to use this opportunity specifically to share how the law was a precursor to something greater. It was the shadow of things to come, and it was now fulfilled. He was trying to tell them all of that was to point you to Jesus Christ, yet these people didn't want to listen. Paul wanted everyone to know that the law was not contrary to this promise God had given Abraham. And going back to our passage, our selected passage, we see Paul specifically wrote those words that the law is not contrary to God's promise. 
And he pointed out the fact also that the law does not give anyone life. It, if it did, then we could obtain righteousness on our own, right? And we wouldn't need a Savior. But that's not the case. We do need a Savior. We very much need Jesus Christ. All the law does is expose our sin. I know I sound like a broken record, but I want you to remember that. That's all the law can do. It doesn't stop sin, and it doesn't forgive sin. And some would argue that the law would actually make our sin increase. How many times have you heard on the news from a politician that if we just had one more law, some problem would stop, right? That's wishful thinking. The law convicts us, but it doesn't necessarily cause you to repent, and it doesn't necessarily cause you to seek forgiveness. The law shows us our true standing before God in that we're fallen creatures. We're born into sin. We cannot keep the law no matter how much effort and time we put into our our own attempts. You see, and and if you're tempted to think, you know, have a form of self-righteousness to you and think, no, 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 I can keep the law. I know how that is. What you're doing is you're actually pushing yourself further away from God in your own arrogance. Humility teaches us, humility, that we need a Savior, and humility points us to Christ. Scripture tells us everyone is born into sin, essentially convicted of sin without the hope of reconciliation on our own. And that's what Paul was preaching. Your legalism will not gain you salvation. But why do we need our sin to be identified and exposed? Why? Well, for that very reason, so we can understand we're not in good standing with God. We are in need of a Savior. And if you don't understand that or you choose to ignore it, well, you're in for a surprise when you do stand before God. You see, Trust me, you don't want to meet God as your judge. And you know, that's one of the most popular tattoos in the world. Only God can judge me. It's like, yeah, but you don't want that to happen. I've heard Steve Bray say that how many times? You know. <laughs> but looking back at our passage, you see in verse 22, Paul referenced Scripture, and he kind of actually gives it an attribute of a person uh, in saying that Scripture acts like a judge. Remember, the law doesn't bring appeasement with God. It simply tells us that we're guilty and we're in need of a Savior. The good news is that the Savior has already arrived. He arrived 2,000 years ago. And if you're a believer, then Jesus is serving as your mediator between you and God the Father. We're reconciled with God only through our faith in Jesus Christ. He is God the Son, and He is the only Savior. You know, and the good news is also that we don't have to live under the curse of sin any longer and the eternal punishment that accompanies it. Our Savior is faithful and true. He's willing to forgive the repentant sinner. So what might be stopping you if you haven't already done that? I want to read to you a, a quick story here to help kind of illustrate the, the point. There was a little boy named Jimmy And Jimmy went to go visit his grandparents on their farm with his sister, Sally. And while he was there, his grandfather gave him a slingshot and told him to go out and play in the woods. Um, So Jimmy took his new slingshot, and he went out in the woods, and he practiced, but he could never hit the target. 
no matter how hard he tried. He was just horrible shot. He became very discouraged, and he started to walk back to the house for dinner. Now, as he was walking back to the farmhouse, he saw his grandma's pet duck. Uh, just out of impulse, he reared back that slingshot and fired, and he actually hit the duck in the head, and the duck died. Well, Jimmy was shocked. He couldn't believe what he had just done. After all that horrible attempts at uh, target practice, he actually hit something. But he was very grieved by what he had done, too, because that was his grandmother's pet. So in a panic, Jimmy picked up the duck and hid it in a wood pile. And as soon as he was finished covering up the dead duck's body, he looked up and he saw his, Sally, or his sister Sally watching him. Sally had seen it all. So the next day after lunch, Grandma said to Sally, Sally, I want you to come help me do the dishes. But Sally said, Grandma, Jimmy already told me he wanted to do all the help in the kitchen. And she looked over to Jimmy and she whispered to him, remember the duck? So Jimmy did the dishes. And later that day, Grandpa asked the children if they wanted to go fishing. But Grandma said, I'm sorry, I'm going to need Sally to stay here and help me make supper. Sally smirked and said, no, no, Grandma, Jimmy already said he wanted help with dinner. So she looked at Jimmy again and whispered, remember the duck? So Sally went fishing and Jimmy stayed home to help his grandmother cook supper. Now after several days of this nonsense, Jimmy was doing all of Sally's chores and he couldn't stand it any longer. He went to his grandmother and he confessed. He said you know, he had accidentally killed her duck with his new slingshot. He apologized and he expressed his sorrow for what he had done. The grandmother knelt down. She gave him a big hug and she said, sweetheart, I already know. You see, I was standing in the window and I saw the whole thing. But know this, I love you. And because I love you, I forgive you. I was just wondering how long you were going to let Sally make a slave of you. <laughs> so ask yourself this, are you still imprisoned by sin? Are you ready to break those chains? Because God is ready and willing to forgive you if you are. But you've got to first go to him and ask. In fact, God is more willing to forgive you than most of us can even realize. That's the heart of Jesus Christ. That's the amazing Savior that we have. Perhaps you're not ready to give up your sin. Uh, maybe you've been told that when you become a Christian, all the fun in life stops. Or you've been told that God made you a particular way, and there ain't no, it doesn't make sense for you to change, right? Um, and it's interesting to me, too, on a personal note, that usually the folks who say this kind of embrace who you are act like this is a new idea, like this is something new that's just happened. Uh, people don't realize that this form of skepticism has all been done before. Um, and most of the time we don't realize this because human beings have a very bad record of remembering and learning from history, you know. You look, look no further than this. All the wisdom you'll ever need in life. The truth is right in front of us, and it's very sobering. You know, we're powerless in our struggle against sin. And I've been told by folks also, I'm very antiquated with my religious ideas about people being broken. You know, 
they, they'll say that like John you, you know all this preaching nonsense you're doing you're telling people they're broken when we should just embrace them the way they are well, I'm gonna tell you folks the adversary the evil one has been planting lies in the minds of human beings since the fall in the Garden of Eden he's the father of lies and he's ready to devour any soul that's caught in sin so don't fall for these lies you know seek God while you still have time Jesus is waiting for you so now that we know we're born into sin and outside of Christ it has total control over us and you know earlier I read uh, just a short passage from Ephesians chapter 2 it was verses 8 and 9 about being saved through grace um, if you look back at that same chapter back to verse 1 You'll read these words, and this is a very sober uh, thing, sobering thing that Paul says to us. He wrote these words. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You know what he's saying there, right? among who, whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. So he's, he's telling us very clearly, like, 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 don't get all high and mighty in your salvation. You were once like those lost souls that you're, you're ministering to. Thankfully, God has called us into salvation. We have Jesus. Remember, he is the only Savior, and we must trust in him to forgive our sins and justify us before the Father in heaven. Again, the law shows us that we are guilty, and yet we're powerless against the sin in our lives. The law should act as a wake-up call for everyone to show you that you need salvation. Um, Jesus Christ, he's the way, he's the, the truth and the life, and no one can get to the Father except through Jesus. So in short, let me try to wrap this up a little bit. This is what we learned from this Bible passage. There's four things. The first thing was that the law was added, it was given to us by God because of our sins. That was the whole reason God gave us the law. The law was in place until the Savior appeared. Remember the Bible verse from earlier. The third thing was that the law was not against God's promise. This, the law was not meant to replace that promise that we would have a Savior. And the fourth thing is that the law confined us under sin until the Savior arrived. Once the Savior arrived, there was no more need for legalism. And if you're a Christian, or, or I'm sorry, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking about becoming one, um, just ask yourself, what would stop you from doing that? I mean, you do know what is at stake here. We're talking about our eternity, being with God or without God, in his kingdom or outside. And perhaps the idea of approaching God in prayer might be intimidating to some of you who don't know Jesus. Um, maybe you've done a lot of bad things in life. Well, to that I say, if that's the case, join the club. 
Human beings blew it a long time ago. Uh, we're all children of wrath in God's eyes because of our sin and our sin nature. But the good news is, is that you don't have to be good enough. You know, you never will be good enough on your own merit. We can't earn our way into heaven. That's, that's been made clear in Scripture numerous times. We can't earn our way back into God's good graces, especially not by trying to keep a set of laws. However, God did give us an easy path back to Him, a path where we move from death to life, we go from judgment to grace, and conviction to freedom, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid our sin debt on the cross. You need to turn from sin. You need to ask Jesus to forgive you for those sins. Trust in Him and He will do that. And then follow Him. When you do this, every sin you've ever committed or will commit in the future is nailed to that cross. That's why Calvary was such a monumental, earth-shattering event. And remember that verse I read you earlier. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 1 John 2, 1. You inherit eternal life in Jesus, and you receive his righteousness upon you when you seek him. Jesus will then become your advocate before God the Father, and you become a child of God eternally. Now, I'll tell you this. When I did that, I didn't instantly become a perfect believer. Um, you know, I continued to stumble and fall. I still stumble and fall. Yet I'm confident in my faith because I know that when I stand before God, I have that righteousness of Christ upon me. Jesus is my advocate, and it's not because of anything I ever done. I, you know, I, I cannot get that on my own. It's because what He has done for us. And if that's you, if you're becoming a Christian now, or maybe you're a young Christian, just, just know you're going to slip up and fall during this life here on earth. Um, but remember that God is the faithful one in this relationship. He's willing to forgive and blot out your sins forever. Don't be a self-righteous person thinking that uh, you can earn your way into heaven. That's not going to happen. But we can live a life that's pleasing to God as we strive for obedience because of our faith in Him. And one thing we don't ever want to do is use God's grace as a license to sin. In Christ, you all are part of a great nation. And you're part of his eternal kingdom. You're a child of God now. And it's all because of what God has done for us in Christ. Following and obeying the law is a good thing. But following Jesus is the only way to eternal life in God's kingdom. So let us pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. Or to expound on it. To make it... Um, evident how we need your word in our lives, Lord, and that your word, Lord, is a great and glorious signpost that points us to Jesus. Lord, I pray for Calvary Baptist Church. I pray for your blessings to be on everyone here and for those who aren't here as well, Lord. Pray that this church will continue to grow, Lord, that we'll outgrow this building in a matter of years, Lord, that we'll continue to influence the community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, and I pray for Mile One Mission. I pray for Pastor Steve and for Matt Leahy as they're over in Scotland sharing the vision that Mile One has here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Lord, I pray for Matt and, and Ruth and their family as they head up the Kilbride Community Church, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that they're being showcased uh, by the North American Mission Board uh, for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, Lord, so that more churches may see the plight that they're going through to establish a church in Kilbride. And I pray for Adam and Sabrina and their family as they plant a church downtown, Lord. They're facing many, many obstacles down there, many stumbling blocks, and some serious spiritual warfare, Lord, in that area. I pray that you watch over them, protect them, Lord. Open doors of opportunity to share. And Lord, for my own endeavor in Labrador, up at, in Goose Bay, at the Northern Cross Community Church, may your blessings uh, be on that church and on that small congregation, Lord, that we can grow and expand and bring more people back to that church and be a positive influence, Lord. I thank you so much for all your blessings, Lord. I pray for our music team. You've blessed this church with such fantastic musicians and singers, Lord. Um, may your grace just be heard through their music. And Lord, we thank you for all things in the blessed and beloved name of Jesus Christ. Amen.